Hey, everyone. How's everybody doing today? Good. My name is Eric, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to the fourth week of this series we're calling Intentional Acts of Discipleship. As Pastor Dan said uh, earlier, and as the pre-message video alluded to, we're looking at what it means to be a follower of Christ in the sense uh, of being called to more than just random acts of kindness. Uh, And we're doing that through the filter of of this passage in the book of of Acts, and and therefore we're, we're looking at it through the filter of the way the first church ordered and patterned their lives because uh, they lived lives that were a lot more than just random acts of kindness. They were led to intentionally arrange their lives in, in a way that, that carried on the legacy of Jesus. And, and we are charged with doing that as well. So we're going to look at the, the same passage that we've been looking at, Acts chapter 2. But then I want to... Um, I want to kind of expand that uh, to another uh, chapter of Acts. Um, But before we do that, I want to just mention something. Anybody know uh, what next Sunday is in Tallahassee? It is the Super Bowl, but it's the marathon. The Tallahassee Marathon, Tallahassee Half Marathon. Anybody know that the course goes straight past our front door? does. So that means a few things. Uh, First, don't run over any runners, please. Um, seriously, uh, expect different traffic patterns next Sunday. So allow for some more time and please be aware. Um, I know that we have some people from the community that will be running. I don't know if I'm gonna be running because I'm struggling with some injuries right now. So uh, if you see me hobbling by there, you know, don't make fun of me. And again, please don't run over me. Um, second thing that it, it means is that we're not quite sure yet what we want our presence to be. I mean, it's a cool thing for have it to have it uh, to be going straight past our front door. There is obviously an opportunity maybe to have the red-eye coffee truck serve coffee to the fans, maybe not so much to the runners. Um, but water, who knows? We don't yet know. But what I'm asking you to do is keep your eyes open and your ears open through CCB, through any of the e-news. If we call out, hey, we need some volunteers, people be willing to kind of just hand some water out, hand some coffee. We just think it's a cool opportunity to engage our community. So next Sunday, before the chili cook-off, um, of course, again, if I run it, I might still be running when the chili cook-off is going on. So I'll just stop by and have some chili, which sounds like a great idea. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so what we're going to do is we're going to start off in Acts chapter 2. And so if you have a Bible and want to flip over there to it, um, I want to read the passage, talk about what we've talked about already and what I'm going to be engaging uh, with today. Verse 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all and, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So again, we've been going through just this passage and just looking at the activities Uh, that the early church did. This is the first days and weeks after Jesus' life 
and his resurrection. So the church is figuring out what it means to be the church. We've just gone through this passage and said, what do we notice? How did they arrange their lives to be intentional disciples of Jesus? So over the past few weeks, we've looked at things like just the fact that they committed to being in a community in the first place. And they committed to giving. And they committed to prayer. And they committed to learning and devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings, right? So that's where we've been so far uh, you could see there's other things in there, but you know, quite frankly, we, we just kind of are, are, are following what God is, is leading us to talk about in this passage. Today, I wanna talk about a word that actually does not appear in this passage, but I think it soaks through the early church, and the word is service, okay? Because I think you can understand that an act of service is involved in selling your possessions and giving to anybody who has needs. Does that make sense to anybody? Service marked the early church in a really, really vital fashion. They weren't gonna have anybody suffering in their midst. You know, we're all in this together. So if any part of the body is suffering, well, we're gonna serve them and serve them in a radical way. I've got some property. I'm gonna get rid of it in order to take care of everybody in this fellowship, in this family of believers. So service is what we're talking about. But I wanna tell you um, right out of the get-go, this is not gonna be one of these messages where I sit up here as a pastor and I beat you guys up for not serving enough. Because uh, as part of my job at E3, I see numbers and I see uh, data. And you guys might know that I'm married to a woman who trained as an economist and was an economist for a while. And even though I'm kind of an artist and a storyteller guy, over the years, my wife has trained me to look at the data. Look at the data. Eric, it doesn't matter how you feel. You have to look at the data. And let me tell you something. The data of E3 says that we have a pretty strong, robust culture of service. If you were at All In on Wednesday, you would have heard this number. We have over 400 positions of service in this church, week in, week out. 400. Does that sound like a lot? I don't know. It sounded like a lot to me, but sometimes I say a number like that and you guys just stare at me like this is my church face. 400. There's actually well over that because that 400, peop- that 400 positions, I want to be clear, that's not 400 people because people serve in multiple positions but that's still a lot, 400 service positions. That does not include music. That doesn't include tech. That's a lot. We do pretty well. If you come to this campus, you come to this church on a Sunday, you will interact, I'm guessing, with anywhere from 40 to 70 people serving. Serving you, serving this community. From Red Eye, hospitality booth, music, tech, kids, J-High leaders, People show up every single Sunday to get this thing done. And that's pretty cool. So if you serve, I'm not gonna tell you to serve more. If you don't serve, I may not beat you up, but I might poke you a little bit. Just because some of us are already doing it. So my agenda is not just to to kind of lay out a vision of, of get out of your chairs and serve, but my my vision is to tell you about two different approaches to service and some of the challenges in those 
approaches to service and quite frankly, how I have interacted with these two approaches to service. And the way I'm gonna do it is I'm actually gonna look at another chapter of the book of Acts, another incident in the early life of the church. So if you have your Bible and you wanna flip over to Acts chapter six, we're gonna look at a few verses here and then go back to chapter two. So I'm gonna start reading in the first verse of uh, Acts six. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, the church is growing, there were rumblings of discontent Boy, that's good to know because 2,000 years later, there's still rumblings of discontent. (laughs) The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So what's going on here? A little context. Um, Christianity, the church at this point, is a Jewish faith. It's a Jewish sect. Nearly everybody in the church is Jewish. But Judaism, uh, you can divide Judaism in a lot of different ways, but one of the ways you can divide it is Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews. Hebrew-speaking Jews have grown up in Israel. They've lived their life in Israel, and they consider themselves to be sort of true Israelites. But um, hundreds, over, over time, Because of war, because of opportunity, because of prosperity, other Jews have left Israel and they've gone to different places around the Mediterranean. And the Mediterranean is almost entirely Greek speaking. So some of these Jewish folks, they speak Greek. And they're also in Jerusalem. And the church is committed to taking care of the widows of both of these segments of people. But there is essentially an ethnic racial divide. Because the people who speak Hebrew uh, seem to be saying, we are more important than the Greek-speaking Jews. Like maybe we're more Jewish because we've been in Israel all this time. Whatever it is, there is an ethnic, a, a racial thing going on in the church. And the apostles need to deal with it. Now, uh, this is a complete aside. Uh, it, it, it hurts my heart to know that the church had uh, a racial and uh, an ethnic challenge in the first century and in the 21st century, we're not doing a whole lot better in some of these instances. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers, which is a good response. There's a thing going on, we gotta talk about it. They said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men. Sorry, ladies, the church is sexist sometimes. Who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word and drinking lattes at Red Eye and... (laughs) Hang on, hold on, hold on. That doesn't really say that. And I I drink espresso, I don't drink lots. Everyone liked this idea and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an early convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. 
So that's the passage. And in a, in a way, there's not a, a whole lot to unpack be, beyond what I've said. There's a problem in the church. The food program that is very important is not being run. The apostles are maxed out, so they make a decision. And they say, we have got to do this teaching thing and this prayer thing. And so what we need to do is get more people involved so that this very important thing of feeding our family can be taken care of. And so the first thought that I want to throw out to you is simply this, that service uh, sometimes happens at the intersection of strength, call, and the needs of the church. Now, what do I mean by that? There is this uh, particular moment of the church where they need the apostles to lean in to something I dare say that they are called to do and are equipped to do, which is teach and pray, right? Spiritual gifts, strengths, passion, that's what I'm talking about. Things that, that, that fill your heart and invigorate your soul. Sometimes the church needs you to step up and do that. And sometimes service happens around that moment where you're like, man, I need to do this thing that I love to do and that I feel called to do and the church needs me to do. So uh, I have walked this road. So I'm gonna give you guys just a wild guess. Like when I started serving in a church, anybody wanna guess where I started serving at a church? What area of the church I started? What? Who, What? <laughs> Music. I had, when I grew up in the church, I just, I warmed pews like a lot of you guys have done. That was my call. I was like, hey, I'm a pew warmer. I'm really good. I warmed that pew up. It's gonna be nice and toasty for the next gathering. I did that for years. And then eventually came the time where I wanted to start serving. And where I started serving was I walked straight up on stage with an electric guitar and I plugged in because my gosh, I was passionate about it and I was good at it. And God equipped me to do it. And the church needed me to do it. Sometimes that's what service looks like, man. You're gonna do the things that you love to do and that you would do whether the church needed you to or not. And that's great. And that is what's going on, I think, in a way in chapter six. The apostles are like, man, we're gonna teach. We have got to teach. The church needs us to teach and we love to teach. So we're gonna let someone else feed the widows so that we can be freed up to teach. Around here at E3, we say, you have to say no to the good to say yes to the great. Everybody, anybody heard Mark say that? It's true, right? I can't serve red-eye coffee out there and play music in here at the same time. I can't. There's only so much time in the day, so many resources. Sometimes you have to make decisions. What are my strengths? What are my passions? And I'm gonna say no to the things that aren't, that good so that I can give my best to the church where the church needs it. But there's another uh, thing that I want to uh, take away from this passage. And this is really cool to me. Uh, the way I would say it is that every act of service is a spiritual act. Because did you notice the way the apostles approach finding people to fill the food program? If it was me, okay, 
And I had to say, I need to make sure everybody, every widow is fed and fed equally. You know who I would tap? I would tap cooks, hello. And I would tap administrators. And I would tap people who could get this done efficiently, correctly, every week, every day. But what are the requirements that the apostles put on these positions? They say, you know what? Go find me people who are filled with the spirit and wisdom. And then how do they commission them for that act? Do they say, hey, go spread the food out. Here's a clicker. Here's a piece of paper. You know what the first thing they do is? They pray for them and they lay their hands on them. And I think it's important to remember that every single act of service you do, whether it's up here playing music or teaching or doing the, quote, spiritual things of the church, every single thing, every single act of service is a spiritual act. If for no other reason that you will never lock eyes with a person that does not bear the image of God. Every person that you interact with is a spiritual person. Therefore, every act of service is a spiritual act. When you are giving a cup of coffee to somebody in the morning, you're not giving a cup of coffee to somebody who's just a body. That's a person who bears the image of God. So, as we move through this, uh, I want to offer you a couple thoughts to think about, okay? And the first question that I'd like you to consider is, do you know your strengths? Do you know your spiritual gifts? And we have these things called stage classes. One of those stage classes is a thing called demonstrate, designed to help you figure out where you fit in to the body of Christ. Some of you might be like me, and you're like, well, I think my spiritual calling is seat warmer, and I do it really well. I warm this seat every Sunday. You can check it when I'm done. It will be warm. <laughs> and I want to thank you for that, because our seats get cold, but I want to be clear about this. I'm not guilt tripping you. I'm challenging you to maybe find out the adventure that God might have for you. Because I sat in warm seats for years. And when I finally got out of my seat and walked up on a stage with a guitar, my life changed entirely. And you, and you could never have asked the 20-year-old Eric or the 23-year-old Eric. He could never have predicted this. He could never have predicted the adventure that he went on. He would have said, no, no thanks. I'm good. I'm warm in this pew. So if you don't know your strengths, and here's some great wisdom about the spiritual gifts or strengths. I've said it before. Nobody has all of them, and nobody has none of them. So if you're sitting out there going, well, I don't have any, eh, wrong. You've got them. And if you've got them, you have no idea what God might have in store for you. So find out what your strengths are. And if you have them, develop them. Because it's not my job to develop your gifts. It wasn't my pastor's job to say, Eric, are you practicing your guitar? I mean, maybe they do. Maybe there's some accountability involved. But if my gift is music, then it's my job to practice my tail off. It's my job to be current and understand how to communicate musically. If it's, if it's my gift to teach, then it's my job to read up about teaching, about how to connect the dots between ideas so that 
so that people can wake up to the wonder of God in their lives. You wanna know what drives me? That's what drives me. That's what I write down. When I stand up and talk to you, when I talk to people one-on-one, my desire is to have people wake up to the wonder of God in their eyes. And that's not Mark's job to make me develop that gift. It's not Dan's, it's not Lori's. And it's not my job to develop your gifts. So you know what your gifts are? You are burdened. You are burdened with the responsibility of learning about them, of cultivating them, developing them, and then exercising them. And then one last thought. This is a challenge for the leaders in this community. If it's true that no act of, that every act of service is a spiritual act of service, my challenge, if you are a leader in this ministry or if you're a leader out there, are you leading your people in that spiritual reality? If you're a leader of the Red Eye Hospitality Crew, are you leading your people with the idea of like, there's not a person that walks through here that's not a spiritual person? Every hand that you shake is a spiritual act. Every cup of coffee that you give out is a spiritual act. Every kid that you care for is a spiritual act. If you're a leader, if you have influence, I challenge you, lead that way because I believe it. But that's not the only vision of service. I told you there's two models of service I don't wanna interact with. That's what I would say is the strength-based model, gift-based model. And I have lived that model and I still do live it. Like Sunday morning, here's an example and just me being honest. Sunday morning, I am in strength-based mode. What do I mean by that? If I'm in this building, I'm gonna tell you, um, I am working. I'm not proud of that, but it's hard for me to shut off my responsibility when I am in this building. So can I just tell you that for those of you guys who wonder, who see me on Sunday, I am capable of having a conversation with a human being. I really am. If, if you only see me on Sunday, I can actually be friendly. And I can actually sit down and have a conversation and drink coffee for minutes or sometimes even an hour. Um, but when I'm in this building, I am in strengths mode because this is my passion, my strength, my responsibility. And that is a good thing, mostly. Because let's be honest, there's sometimes when I understand that there's people here who wanna have a conversation with me on Sunday and I struggle to switch that off, I do. And I know, it's not, I know it's not great, but it's just a reality. So there's another way that service in the book of Acts has challenged me. So I wanna go back to Acts chapter two. We're gonna read this text again. You're gonna have this memorized by next week, I can tell you. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So to me, as I read Acts chapter two, Acts chapter two pushes up against this strength-based model, okay? 
Because as I read that text, what I see in it is that, okay, the apostles are performing some signs and wonders, right? But the sense that I get from the text is that all of the things that are happening, everybody's doing. Everybody's involved in sharing meals and selling things and giving things away. There's no sense in this text as I read it of, okay, there's some people with the spiritual gift of giving. So we're gonna have them sell some property and give to the people in need. As I read the text, I see everybody looking around and going, what's the church need? Whether it's my gift or not, whether it's my strength or not, what is God doing? And everybody is all in. So here's the thought that pushes up against the strength-based model, and it's simply this, that sometimes service has nothing to do with strength and call. And it has everything to do with need. Now, I have lived this out as well. As I said, I started off, when I served at the church, I served musically, I served uh, teaching, and then I started shepherding people, which just means sitting down with people and trying to help them make sense of their lives and what God is doing. But over time, I became aware that, that, that there was more to following Jesus than just doing what I liked to do. There's more to following Jesus than just doing the things I'm passionate about. There was a way that, King, that Jesus lived in the world that was calling me to do more. So uh, we were a part of a church in Chicago that ran what we called a warming center. And it was just this storefront that was open from about 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Um, every day. And when it was cold, uh, homeless folks could come and we were open for a few hours and they could come and get a sandwich and they could get out of the cold. And when it was hot, they could come and get out of the hot and have a sandwich and hang out for a couple hours, okay? And we did it and we did it with this sense of like, you know what, a lot of shelters that, you know, at the time in Chicago, at least a lot of shelters, they wouldn't feed you or give you anything until you sat through like a gospel presentation, right? So, and, so, and these guys were just like, I'm just, I'm just hungry and I'm cold and I'm tired. So we started this thing. We said, you know what? We're not gonna clobber you with the gospel. You're cold, you're hungry, sit down. And so um, they asked people to come over and hang out. Uh, we just asked the guys, look, don't fight, you know, be respectful and that's it. And so, okay, let me tell you, like, I, I, I'm a nice guy, but I am an introvert. And so to ask me to go to someplace a couple times a week and say, okay, I want you to sit down with, with you know, whoever's there and just talk to them for a couple hours and play board games. Man, I hate board games. <laughs> I do, I do. Ask my wife, I do. But they said, we need bodies, we need people. And I'm sitting there going, I mean, I'm not good at any of this. But you know what? This is kind of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is what my church needs. So a couple times a week, I walked my butt over to the warming center and I sat down with people. You know what was funny? They used to think I was a cop. <laughs> Which if you're a cop, I'm sure you're like, that's ridiculous, Eric. But they did, because mostly because I was so quiet and I didn't always, I wasn't like super gregarious. And this guy used to tell me, he's like, yeah, man, we had, we had you pegged. Like you were a cop. And I'm like, wow. Well, so, you know, around here, 
Uh, this is not about me. This is not me bragging at all. This is just saying, this is the point I'm trying to make. Around here, you know, I, I do serve Tallahassee, not every time, but I, I do it um, occasionally. Um, you know, I, I don't play my guitar at Serve Tallahassee. I don't teach at Serve Tallahassee. I show up, I'm a volunteer. I'm not a leader. I've been to Guatemala a few times, you know. Um, I don't, uh, you know, I'm not a handyman. You know, in Guatemala, we build houses. You know, I can move cinder blocks from here to there, but you ask, first global outreach meeting I went, Carl Green was my leader. And I mean, like a lot of those guys, they just kind of, I try to help and they kind of shake their heads and they're like, Eric, bless his heart, you know. You know, Eric, just, just move the cinder blocks, please. I don't go down there because I'm good at it. I go down there because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Sometimes the church just needs you to step up. And it's not about, man, I'm gonna feel really good about moving these cinder blocks. I'm gonna feel really good. This is my passion is cinder blocks. My passion is ditch digging. Uh-uh. <laughs> and this is what I see in Acts chapter two. Nobody's sitting around going, hey, it's my passion to sell my property and give to everyone. It's a little bit more like, I don't know if I have the gift of, of giving. I don't know, but here's what I do know. People are hungry and we are called to provide for everybody, everybody in our community. So I'm just gonna do it. So sometimes service has nothing to do with passion and strength. But here's, uh, and here's another thought for you. And this is really cool. Uh, service is a great testing ground and refining area for your spiritual journey. Because you won't know how good you are or how, how, where you stand with Jesus until you get out and start serving people in an area, especially in an area you're not passionate about. See, we can buy into this thing, at least I have, that I can sit around, I, can, I, I read my Bible a lot, I read my Bible every day, I pray, you know, I, I meditate on scripture, and I, you know, it's just them, me and Jesus, like, man, we're getting this thing done, me and Jesus. And then I'll go out and I'll serve in an area, particularly an area that I'm not passionate about, so like, let's be, let's just use it as an example. Um, you know, uh, I'm praying, and I got my thing with Jesus going on, but you asked me about three o'clock on a global outreach trip, three o'clock in the afternoon after lifting cinder blocks all day. That'll tell you how good I am with Jesus. When your temper is short and your shoulders are sore, and you're tired and worn out. See, we like to pretend that we can figure out this spiritual life with just sitting in our bedrooms or our living rooms or our growth groups and talking about this. You wanna see how good you are with Jesus? You go out and serve somewhere. Because service usually involves this thing called people. And people are crazy. And you will figure out, oh, I thought I was good with Jesus, but you know what? I actually have a temper still. Dang. So use service as a way to figure out, like, where am I on my spiritual journey? Don't let just me try to name where I'm at on my spiritual journey. Man, let me get out and mess around in the world. That'll tell you and tell me where my character still needs to be formed. So the question that I would challenge you to, uh, to think about uh, there's two of them. One is how do you do at responding to needs? And whether it's in here, it's in the community, whatever. How do you respond when, when there's a call, for, when there's a need? You know, because a lot of us, let's face it, a lot of us go, well, the guy behind me will take care of it because 
they can't sing very well, so it's obvious their spiritual gift isn't singing, so they're probably good with the needs, right? When there's a need, how do you respond? Do you respond with, that's not my gift, that's not my passion, or do you just go, man, I'm all in. There's a need, let me fill it. And then the second one is, when's the last time you stretched yourself? When's the last time you said, I know my gifts, I know my strengths, I know my passion, now let me just wipe that off the table and do something crazy because I wanna stretch myself. Global outreach trips, man, they're coming up. The meetings are coming up. Hospitality, always in need. And you might be like, man, I don't have a hospitality bone in my body. Guess what? Grumpy pastor would say, I don't care. Because I'm a little bit more interested in how I would grow. So what I want to spend the last couple minutes we have here is, is, is entertaining the question, is there something that fuses together these two approaches? The, the strengths-based model says, do what you're good at doing. Have a maximum impact of the church, and by golly, you should. The needs-based model says, sometimes get out of your comfort zone and contribute where there's a need, and by golly, you should. Now, is there something that fuses these things together? Well, we're at church, so of course there is. If you were to flip over a few, a few pages in your New Testament, you would come to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a church a messed up church, messed up church in Corinth. Man, there's disunity, rich people, poor people hating each other. And Paul rips them a new one in this letter. Uh, it's his probably most angry, most sarcastic letter where he is blasting them on so many issues. But he goes through this uh, passage in what we would call chapter 12 and he starts talking about spiritual gifts, which is what we're talking about, gifts, finding a way to serve in the body. And Paul goes through all of these spiritual gifts, healing, miracles, prophecy, um, preaching, so on and so forth. But all the time he's going, look, yes, serve, spiritual gift, but be unified. Gifts, unity. No gifts are better than anybody else. Let me tell you, if you don't know any better, if you don't know already, none of these people up here playing music, or preaching are any better than a person that hands you a cup of coffee. The gifts are all equal. It's about unity. So Paul is saying, look, the gifts are great, but you have to be unified. And then he ends chapter 12 this way. He says, are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. And then Paul says this, so you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. And Paul's like, well, what? What's that mean? Because he doesn't really ever say what the most helpful gifts are. But then he turns it, because Paul's smart, and he goes, but let me show you a way of life that is the best of all. So Paul's saying, look, you can have your gifts, and you can have your service, but there's a way, and there's a level above that that you need to think about. And then he goes into 13, chapter 13, which I'm just going to read. If you've been around a Christian wedding or two, you will know these words. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained, what's the text say? Nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no records of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last how long? Forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete. And even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely, three things will last forever. Say it with me, church. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Beyond strength-based serving, beyond needs-based serving, is love. It's love. If I play on a Sunday without love, it's nothing. If I serve a cup of coffee without love, it's nothing. The thing that fuses Acts 2 and Acts 6 together is the, is the idea that we have got to be people, most of all, of radical love. Let me burst your bubble. If you hear that passage read at a wedding, it has nothing to do with man and wife. It has everything to do with how you serve. Yes, know your spiritual gifts. Yes, develop them. Yes, lean into them. But don't lose love. It's not worth it. The body doesn't need it. You sit around and you hear a need at your church. Step up to the plate, whether it's your strength and passion or not, but don't lose love. The body doesn't need it. The body needs love. So my challenge to you, my challenge to myself, because I'm one of you, is to serve with gifts, according to needs, with love. And here's, here's the thing. I want to end this way. When service is infused with love, I think the world listens. When service is combined with love, I think the world outside sits up and listens in a different way. You see, the, the, the first church, we'll give you a little bit of history. The first church is taking shape in the context of the Roman Empire, and it's a dicey relationship. Um, 
for the first few hundred years of the church that goes through periods of persecution where Rome comes in and they're just like, we've had enough. We're gonna kill your leaders, outlaw your religion. It's not good. Um, that all changes around 300 when a guy named Constantine is the Roman emperor. And he makes Christianity the official state religion. A lot of theologians say that's the worst moment of the church's history. When Rome, the empire, says you're now the official state religion. And the church goes from being what we would call prophetic word in culture to what they call the chaplain of the empire. Let's take care of the empire. But not every Roman emperor is a Christian. Uh, there's a guy after Constantine named Julian, and his name is, uh, he's known as Julian the Apostate, which is an awful name. It means Julian, basically the unbeliever. He is not, he decides, no, I'm gonna reverse everything Constantine's done. We're gonna get rid of this Christianity thing. He, we have some record, uh, we have some of his words. And I want you to hear this. This is a guy that hates Christians. He hates Christianity. And I want you to read these words. And, and the key idea is gonna come up on the screen in just a moment. He says, we observe that it's these Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and what he calls their pretended holiness of their lives. All of these things has increased atheism. Now, from his perspective, atheism for him is not believing in the Roman gods. So he's like, their benevolence to strangers and their care for people is making people not believe in the Roman gods anymore. And then he says this, it's disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, those are the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. So he's looking around and going like, man, this faith that I can't stand is taking care not, not only of their own, but they're taking care of everybody else. And I hate it. And here's the deal. The first century Roman world looks a lot like 21st century America. Rome is a pluralist society, lots of different ways of life. It's a huge empire. It's a superpower. They have this plethora of gods like we do. Ours aren't called Venus and Apollo and Hera. Ours are called consumerism, individualism. We have all these idols and gods, right? Just like Rome does. And what we've gotten really used to is just like Paul sometimes in the Bible, we got really used to shouting at the culture. It's really easy to sit in these walls and tell that culture out there, here's everything that's wrong with it. And Paul does it. You read the Bible, Paul's like, man, there's some terrible things going on in culture. But guess what? We've shouted so much that I don't think the world's listening anymore. They don't. They pretty much have figured out that the church is gonna rant about a lot of things. It's falling on deaf ears now. But my hunch is that a pluralist world will still listen to service. I think there's a lot at stake in the way we serve. I think there's a lot at stake in the way a world looks at us and goes, man, those people sure do love each other, and they take care of everybody, even more than the people that come to their church. So service is not just occupying a space on Sunday. It's not just going on a global outreach trip. It is singing a song of evangelism 
and love to a culture that has stopped listening to us rant but still wants to hear the message of good news, I believe. And I'm staking my life on it. Let's stand up for closing. 